Thank you, Bert. Good evening, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24? Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. As you can see on the, uh, the slide on the board, we'll be looking uh, at Daniel 9, 27 today. And we'll be talking uh, about this verse uh, that uh, this verse says that Antichrist will suspend the worship. <laughs> Hold on one second. If you notice something I can't spell here, wordship. Actually, that's what it used to be, I think, years ago. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at uh, Daniel 9.27. We'll be in this verse for a couple more uh, Wednesdays. But uh, we're looking today that the Antichrist <laughs> suspends the worship of the God of Israel uh, during the, the, uh, the 70th week of Daniel. So that is what we'll be looking at tonight. So we're going to be getting a, a run of classes that are going to be talking quite a bit extensively about the Antichrist because this verse is all about it. So we'll be going back to Daniel chapter 7 again. Uh, and uh, we, saw, we were there last Wednesday. And that chapter is the first, really the first introduction to the Antichrist in the Bible. And uh, we'll be also, if we have time, I think we'll be in Revelation 13 uh, uh, tonight as well. And so we have a lot of, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 probably as well, because Paul talks about the Antichrist. So those 2 Thessalonians 2, this passage, Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, will be in all those passages because they talk extensively about the Antichrist, the, uh, the, the great Roman dictator uh, that will come to power uh, when the church is gone after the, the rapture of the church. So, um, and I think that's about, what was that? Somebody, I wanted to share something with somebody who had a good question. Oh, well, we were talking today. Uh, before class, uh, Ray and I were talking about uh, the Antichrist, you know, and uh, he, uh, he was saying, you know, you think it'd be one of the popes, you know, because based out of Rome, right? I said, no. I said, but I'll tell you what, in the, the, in the Reformation, like the Lutheran Calvin, if you, because they were former Catholic priests, they all thought the, uh, the, one of the popes was going to be the Antichrist. But it's not. He's going to be a military person. What I, I said to him, actually, what I think he's going to, what I think is uh, in that second beast and, uh, in Revelation 13, uh, he, uh, he comes as a lamb. He has, his horns are like a lamb, and, uh, and, he's, uh, and, he, and he's boastful words as well. But the false prophet actually promotes the worship of the Antichrist. So I think what's going to happen is, because the Antichrist is based out of Rome, uh, he's going to, uh, the, uh, one of the popes, I believe, is going to be uh, promoting the worship of him during that time. That's my view. We can't really be sure until we get we, we, the time happens when we'll be in heaven by then. But uh, that's what I that's what I believe. And uh, but he will. Uh, we'll be talking a lot about who he is. We know we've been talking a lot about that he's a Roman. And uh, but uh, you know he will be a political individual. He speaks boastful words. Um, but he's also, I believe, a military person as well. Um, because of some of that, we're going to be tracking his movements during the, the 70th week of Daniel uh, in the next uh, month or so. So into in March, we'll be talk, tracking his movements, especially when you look at Daniel 11.36 to uh, the end of that chapter, Daniel chapter 11. It talks extensively of his troop movements, what he does, and, and the different nations he'll attack. So uh, that's a preview of coming attractions. We've got a lot, a lot of ground to cover in uh, this great uh, uh, subject of the Day of the Lord. And so without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer. As is our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, he, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, he purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. Now, we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which he's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. With that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day to study your almighty word. We thank you, Father, uh, for everyone that is here this evening that's taken time out of their busy weeks right in the middle of the week to come hear your word. They value what the word of God. So I thank you for each and every one of them and the rest of this congregation and the leadership, church leadership as well. I just thank you, Father, for this building, this beautiful building to meet here uh, in, on a, uh, a weekly basis, daily basis. We just thank you, Father, for that. Uh, this building and, the, and, the, and what you provided so we could have uh, such a great building. And I just thank you for uh, the leadership of this church. I just pray you give us the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this congregation in a fashion that brings glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. I also thank you for the study in the day of the day of the Lord, Father. I just pray it would be a great encouragement to your people. And actually, and not only help us evangelistic-wise, evangelizing the non-believer, but also motivate us to live our lives in accordance uh, with your word in light of the imminency of these events that we're studying with regards to the, the 70th week of Daniel, uh, which is uh, um, prompted really by the, uh, uh, the rapture, the resurrection of the church as you taught us. And I just uh, pray, Father, this evening that you'll help everyone, everyone in the audience to concentrate, help them to carefully consider what we're being, what's being taught here uh, by the Spirit and, and in order to make uh, personal application as individuals in their own walk with you, and also uh, as well as uh, as all of us as a corporate unit would be spoken to as as well, Father. I pray you would empower me to bring forth your full counsel tonight with regards to this passage in Daniel 9.27, where the Antichrist you teaches, teach us through the Spirit suspends the worship of yourself and the Son and the Spirit, and we just uh, pray, Father, that you'd uh, help me with that and uh, so that your people could receive the necessary spiritual nourishment. So we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, it should be at Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And uh, at, some, at different points, I'll be noting my translation uh, as well. But uh, let's start off looking at, we'll read Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which talks about the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, we call the 70 weeks of Daniel. It says in Daniel 9, 24, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy places. We pointed out in great detail uh, these 77s as 490 prophetic uh, years 
uh, that we have. Uh, a week in this prophecy is seven years, and of course, 63, uh, 69 of them, 430, 483 prophetic years, have already been fulfilled in history, and we're just awaiting Daniel 9.27 to be fulfilled, because all these verses, except for verse 27, have been fulfilled literally right to the, the day in history. Then it says in verse 25, know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, the ruler, comes. There'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And the book of Nehemiah talks about this decree of the Persian ruler who history tells us was Artaxerxes Longamanus. We noted there were at least four uh, decrees by Persian rulers around that time. And this is the only one that fits the bill that Nehemiah notes because uh, that talks about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so then we see that uh, these the first uh, seven weeks, 449 years, then we have on top of that another 434. Uh, and so that they rank contiguous. There's no break in between. There's no time gap in between them. So what marks the beginning of this 70 weeks prophecy is actually Artaxerxes Longamanus in 444 BC issuing that decree to rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah, a book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, as we read, uh, talks about this. So then it says, after the 62 sevens, in other words, after the 69th week, the 483rd prophetic year, because remember, uh, the 62 sevens follow immediately right after the seven sevens. So it says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one, again, this is speaking of Jesus, the anointed, the Messiah, will be cut off and will have nothing. In other words, he would not have his millennial reign. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. As we pointed out, the, the people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple was turned out to be, history tells us, the Romans in 70 AD. So this ruler is coming from these people. All right, The people are the one to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, not this ruler. He do, he's never done that in history. So the ruler is the Antichrist. He's the referent that is being, uh, in verse 27, with the he will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. So he's the, the nearest antecedent. Not the Messiah, not Jesus, we pointed out. He couldn't be that. Jesus never made a treaty with Israel and then broke it and then uh, abolished uh, the worship of the God of Israel himself. It just never happened. It's ridiculous some of the things that uh, the preterists have to say about this passage. They butcher it. So this is all, this has all been refilled in history and it took place after the 69th week. And the 69th week uh, ended with Jesus uh, pro, uh, uh, presenting himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah, and of course they rejected him. So, as we saw in our chart on the board that I put together for us, uh, here's the, uh, it'll help you visually see what I just said. Uh, the, here's the decree to, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 BC, off to the farthest left of my, I'm pointing to, and that begins the 70 weeks prophecy, 490 prophetic years. So you see seven weeks, uh, equivalent to 49 years was fulfilled with the rebuilding of Jerusalem and on top of that right immediately after that was another 62 weeks equivalent to 434 years added all together 69 weeks equivalent to 483 years and that 483rd year uh, ended right to the day as we pointed out with Jesus Christ's triumphal entry to Jerusalem actually it was his tearful entry because he knew and uh, predicted that they would reject him and he everybody knew they had so then there's a the 70th week begins with the Antichrist making a treaty 
with the, with the, uh, with the, uh, the nation of uh, Israel. So if you look at verse 27, it says, He, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination. It's actually plural in the Hebrew. And the NIV made a mistake to not uh, translating it with the uh, uh, plural uh, uh, translation. And he says, so in the, on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So we see here that uh, the Antichrist, we don't see a Roman ruler in history uh, who's made a, 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 a treaty a, 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 with uh, the nation of Israel. In fact, uh, the nation of Israel wasn't a nation <laughs> with geographical boundaries and a central government until 1948. For 2,000 years, she was out of the land. So there's nobody in history uh, that could, even if there was, that could, we had a potential to do, doing or fit the bill. For 2,000 years, they, over 2,000 years, they weren't even in the land. They weren't even, have a, they weren't even recognized as a sovereign nation. And it wasn't until 1948 that they were recognized as a sovereign nation. So who since 1948 can fit this? Did, did the nation of Israel make a treaty with some kind of Roman ruler? No. So it hasn't happened. So the preterists are wrong who think that all this stuff was done in the first century with Jesus. So uh, the Antichrist treaty with Israel has not uh, start, uh, taken place in history. And so we see that the, the rapture, the, ch uh, the church, is what triggers it, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And, but that doesn't start the treaty. It's the treaty with the Antichrist makes with Israel immediately after that will uh, start the 70th week, the final uh, uh, week, which actually the, these 490 prophetic years, these 70 weeks, are actually the prophetic outline for the Bible, the future. But also, it's actually the time in which God is disciplined in the nation of Israel. And the times of the Gentiles actually run coterminous with it. The times of the Gentiles began in 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple with, under Nebuchadnezzar. It'll end with the second advent to Christ, just like the 70th week of Daniel will. And so the times of the Gentiles, are, Paul, Jesus talks about this in Matthew, uh, Luke 21, 24. And it's a time when the Gentile, world, Gentile nations are the world powers. And that's going to be in direct contrast to the millennial reign of Christ, where the nation of Israel is the superpower. And, uh, and rules the world for a thousand years with her king, the God-man Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, uh, teaching and issuing decrees and, and ruling the world. And so we see that the, uh, in the middle of this particular week, this uh, 70th week, which is actually, tw uh, we see, uh, broken up into two 1260-day uh, sections, or in other words, three and a half years, which we'll talk about tonight. And so the first three and a half years, Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the inhabitants of the earth at that time will be saying there's peace and security. So this Antichrist has obviously uh, been able to uh, give some kind of uh, stability in the world where he's, uh, the people, the inhabitants of the earth think this, this is going to be the millennium itself without Jesus. And so he breaks that treaty. And we'll talk about that tonight and next week as well. And that starts the Armageddon campaign, which goes on for 1260 days, or in other words, 42 months, as Revelation 11.2 says, and also, we could say, uh, 260 days. According to the Jewish reckoning, account, Jewish reckoning of time, which is a 360-day calendar, not 365-day calendar like we have. So we have the 70th week of Daniel, and this primarily this Day of the Lord series uh, is primarily about the eschatological or the prophetic Day of the Lord, which actually is triggered by the rapture of the resurrection of the church. 
And so, and it starts with the Antichrist Treaty uh, with the nation of Israel. So that is what uh, the, uh, the 70 weeks prophecy looks like and visually to you as to what we just read and studied in detail and, and related, related to that. So let me give you my translation of Daniel 9.27, which says on the board, then he, the Antichrist, the, the, the ruler that comes from the people that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, the Romans, he will establish a firm covenant with the leaders. That's the leaders of the nation of Israel. And actually in the Greek, uh, the, Greek the Hebrew, uh, there's the Septuagint translation, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Hebrew. The Hebrew talks about great ones, as we pointed out. So it's the, it's, the, it's the military and political leadership of the nation of Israel at that time. So then he will establish a firm covenant with the leaders, uh, which will be one unit of seven years. Okay? Then it says, however, he will cause the sacrificial offering to stop in the middle of this unit of seven years, while between the wings, which results in abominations, he will cause desecration. Indeed, until the decreed complete destruction is poured out against the desecrator, the Antichrist. And of course, what's interesting this Sunday, uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 13, we're going to be studying, that I've been pointing out in passing in our studies of Habakkuk chapter 3, that we're, going to, we're actually going to look at the, I don't know too many guys who've seen this. I, there's got to be somebody. I haven't really checked some of the guys who are big into prophecy, like a, uh, Wolvert or um, uh, uh, Pentecost or somebody, people like that. Um, I haven't seen if they've ever mentioned this. I haven't found it anywhere. But I'm going to show you on Sunday in Habakkuk 3.13, uh, we're going to take two hours to do that verse because it's big. Uh, we see that uh, we'll talk about the, 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 the Jews, the remnant of Jews that have survived uh, the events of the tribulation period, the second heaven of Christ. You get uh, also the, uh, the, the, the execution of the Antichrist. Jesus Christ himself will kill the Antichrist. And so uh, we see here, it's talked about here, and in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, but it's very explicitly uh, described for us in prophetic, poetic terms in Habakkuk 3.13, Jesus executing him and killing him. So we see here that in Daniel 9.27, uh, the, the angel that, uh, that Daniel is receiving this information from is Gabriel. So Gabriel, the elect angel Gabriel, uh, and by the way, it's interesting, and I, we brought this out in our study of Jude, um, these, there's only two elect angels that we know of, uh, know, know by name, their personal name. There's uh, Gabriel. He always seems to be associated with the salvation of mankind and the nation of Israel. Uh, we see him at the, uh, showing up at the announcement of the Messiah, of Mary getting pregnant, and the Messiah coming into the world. And uh, so we see him, but we also see him here with Daniel talking about the deliverance, really, of the nation of Israel is what he's really talking about here, at the, ultimately. So I, that's why he's involved. But you get Michael, the elect angel, who's mentioned in Jude, as we saw. We see him in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. And so he is actually a rule, the, the, the ruler angel uh, of, uh, of, the, of the elect angels. He's actually the, the head honcho. And so... Uh, he uh, is, uh, is the, him and Gabriel, those are the only elect angels we know by name, all right? Now, there's like a book, like uh, you might hear about it, is First Enoch, and uh, it's an intertestamental book that the Jews read from. In fact, we saw that uh, Jude quoted from it, uh, and it talks, that book talks a lot about, the Jews talk a lot about that book, Enoch does, about the angels, and, and they have names for these na angels. So it's not inspired, considered inspired by the church or uh, Israel, 
but it's quite interesting, it makes quite interesting reading. But uh, here we have Gabriel, he's mentioned by name. So it says, in da- and so in Daniel 9.27 here, we see Gabriel is informing Daniel now that after the coming leader, mentioned in Daniel 9.26, establishes a seven-year treaty with the leadership of Israel, which marks the beginning of the 70th week, or the, 70, uh, the 70th uh, unit of seven years. This ruler, will, this Roman ruler, this Roman dictator, he will cause the sacrificial offering to stop in the middle of this 70th week. So this means, people, that three and a half years into this treaty, the Antichrist will cause the sacrificial offering in the temple to stop. And this implies that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and the Levitical sacrifices will be reestablished. Now, there's several websites, if you go online and you go in Israel and stuff, you know, they have the Levitical offerings and all that stuff ready to go. They had the cornerstone. I heard the cornerstone got busted up and they had to get another one. Uh, but uh, there's also, they, there's a lot of archaeological work on the Temple Mount area. And we pretty much know that, you know, Solomon's Temple is down there. And it's also, wait, and by the way, this, this, the streets of Jerusalem today, uh, it's way down where Jesus walked, okay? This, is, this city's been built on rubble, okay? And, and on top of the other. So where Jesus walked, the streets where Jesus walked, like, you know, they have that... Um, they walk in, they, you know, they, uh, I was talking to people and uh, went to Israel and they're talking about, you know, going through the streets of the Jews and they have the, you know, they're the going through the streets. And he, he was, they, the, the streets of the apostles and Jesus walked on way, 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 way down, way down. So we see that, that uh, we know that the Solomon's temple is there and then we know Solomon's temple was destroyed and then Zerubbabel's temple, as we saw in the book of Haggai, was built and it ended up being Herod's temple, which is a massive, became a massive complex and was actually continuing to be built even as Jesus was uh, finishing up his ministry in approximately 33 AD. So we know pretty much where this is going to be and this is the Dome of the Rock. Okay, so it's interesting in 19, you know, 40, uh, not 48, 1967, and uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a great book on that this Israeli uh, guy wrote. I got it in my library. I can't remember the name. Great book about the Six-Day War. And there's some very weird things that happened during that war, which makes you think that the, the, God, the God of Israel had, was intervening in this situation. But what's interesting about that war is that uh, most people don't realize, this, and it's brought out in this book, um, that Johnson's the president. You know, it was five years before they had the Cuban Missile Crisis, with Khrushchev and Kennedy, and uh, so we see that the Russians, they were not happy about the Israelis basically taking back the whole, all this land and, you know, pushing Egypt out of the way and just just make it, just, just clean it house, and uh, nobody gave them a chance, and then, so they get, they seize the Temple Mount area, which is a huge, very big event in history, so they, they, they seize it, but the, Russia, and, and for their reasons, because they had a lot of allies, you know, they had their we know their their allies, you know, Syria and all that, didn't like that, you know, them taking the Temple Mount. And the Muslims are all making a big deal about the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, Jerusalem was never a top city for them to worship. It all of a sudden became one once the Jews got back in the land. That's true. So we see that they get the, they get the Temple Mount, they, see, they capture it, and so the United States and Russia are ready to go to war over it. You know, general war, nuclear war, you call it general war back then. And so they, they basically made the negotiating thing with the Israelis that you can't go up and pray on that mount, up the Temple Mount area. With, you know, mount. So 
they, in fact, there's a sign that you, you could get arrested if, if you're a Jew and you want to go pray up there. Okay. So, uh, so there is that Temple Mount area. Is good. You get the Dome of the Rock. So, it, so people say, oh, how is it going to happen? How is it going to get the temple rebuilt and everything? I have no idea. Now, some guys will sit there and give you their opinion and talk about, I, don't, I, don't, I try not to get into speculation too much, especially when it comes to prophecy. Just tell you what the text says. We'll find out. There's like great, famously John Wolvard one time. I could not believe they asked him to be on Nightline with T- Ted Koppel. Anybody remember that? The Persian Gulf War took place, the first one. John Wolvard, the second president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Big time prophecy. He's a contemporary of the colonel. They knew each other. And he, he followed Louis Sperry Schaefer. They have him and some two guys on there. I could not believe it. Ted Koppel. And this is like, so they're asking about, you know, what do you think? He says, well, well, uh, I think it was this issue, but his famous line to me was like, crack me, he says, well, when it happens, then we'll know. He was like, because in the meantime, he said, why bother speculating? We have no idea. In fact, the church has to be out of the way before anything happens anyways with the Armageddon campaign, the seventh week. So he, great answer. So some guys like to sit there and, uh, you know, um, blow smoke at you or give you a bunch of I try to stick I will tell you I'm speculating if I'm speculating what ifs and white night you hear me say it with you know the United States not being a prophecy and so the rapture probably is going to decimate our country hey that might not happen it might not be maybe another total reason why the United States is not around and Israel feels the need to go and make a treaty with this guy the head of the United States of Europe so uh, try to stick to the text so when I when I tell you I'm speculating I'm going to tell you so I don't want to do anything speculating about this. I have no idea. It could be an earthquake. It could be. I, here's a good speculation. Okay, the Antichrist is going to be some big time peace guy. Okay, so he's coming as a, as a peace guy. So what's going to happen is I think is that he's going to get. He's going to be able to persuade the uh, the people of the Muslim, uh, Islamic religion to back off that place for some. He's going to do something. Maybe he won't. I don't know. Maybe it'll be an earthquake. I don't know. So it's one of those things. So uh, we see here that uh, Daniel 9.27, Gabriel is informing Daniel that after the coming leader mentioned in Daniel 9.26 establishes a seven-year treaty with the leadership of Israel, which actually marks the 70th week, he will cause the sacrificial offering to stop in the middle of the 70th week. So this means that three and a half years into this treaty, the Antichrist will cause the sacrificial offering in the temple to stop, and this implies that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and the Levitical sacrifices will be reestablished. And, uh, you know, I don't think it'll happen, be, you know, I don't think it will happen while the church is here. Because that's just going to be pretty obvious, like something's good. So I think Antichrist will probably help make this, build this treaty. Well, here's the thing. The other, th- uh, this uh, temple will probably help rebuild. Here's the interesting thing that most people, I'll talk about this, I think, tonight, yeah. Um, it's an inside job. He's making a treaty with him, okay? So his troops are already there. Okay, he's already there. He's in the, has access to this temple. Okay, a Jewish temple. Think about that. He's able to walk in there. Okay, so, you know, why are they allowing him to walk in there? You know, like, well, because he's on good terms with them. Really good terms. Okay. <laughs> so could you make the Orthodox Jews letting this guy? So something, I think he's probably going to be allowed to go in there because he's going to help them build this temple. Okay. Now, we know he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. 
He comes from the Romans, okay? He's now, I used to think years ago he was, he was going to be Jewish because that passage in Genesis about the, the tribe of Dan, you know, biting the heel of the thing, that's not, you can't use that for support. I don't have time to go into it. So he says, we see that the, all of this means that three and a half years into this treaty, the Antichrist is going to cause the sacrificial offering in the temple to stop, and this again implies that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and the Levitical sacrifices will be reestablished. So the coming ruler who breaks this treaty with Israel during the 70th week could not be Antiochus Epiphanes IV, since nowhere in history or the Old Testament is he said to establish a seven-year treaty with Israel and then break this treaty after three and a half years. He lived in the second century B.C., and he's actually prophesied about in Daniel chapter 8 in great detail. Now, we see, in fact, Paul teaches, and we'll go to this passage too, Paul teaches in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which I've referenced uh, several times in this study, that it will be the Antichrist who does this, and Apostle John also teaches this in the book of Revelation. Antiochus Epiphanes IV put a stop to the sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem in the second century BC, as predicted by Daniel chapter 8. However, nowhere is, it, is he said to have established a seven-year treaty with Israel and then break it after three and a half years. So why am I mentioning this guy Antiochus Epiphanes IV? Because there are people that you will run into that will say, oh, that's not it, 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 this Antichrist. It's a guy back in the second century BC. So now you know, you got some info and ammo ready to go. Oh, I remember Pastor said this, Pastor Bill said this. He didn't even make a seven-year treaty, this guy, with Israel. So you can cross him off the, uh, as not being able to fulfill this. So Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the fourth, his actions... Uh, they do typify, however, or foreshadow the actions of Antichrist during the 70th week. So Antiochus Epiphanes IV is quite interesting in that Daniel chapter 8 passage. He typifies the Antichrist in that passage, and later, in the ch- later in that chapter. So the coming ruler people, the coming ruler who establishes this treaty with Israel, and then after three and a half years breaks, breaks it, is by no means Jesus Christ. Okay, I mentioned this before, because some people think it is him, okay, in Daniel 9.27. It can't be him. So the coming ruler who established this treaty with Israel, and then after three and a half years breaks it, is by no means Jesus Christ, since our Lord's ministry did not last seven years, and also his death on the cross did not bring a stop to the sacrifices. And furthermore, he never set up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple, as this verse says. And his Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24 and 25, the Lord Jesus Christ makes mention of this event. It says in Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which, caught, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul also refers to the Antichrist desecrating the temple and declaring himself God and demanding the worship of the world. So hold your place. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll be going to this passage quite a bit in this study. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. So one of the things as you're turning there, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, one of the things you know over the years you notice when you teach the Bible, I've been teaching it for, since, oh, I don't know, back in my 20, uh, uh, early 20s, right? Uh, Bob's. But, so anyways, you know, do, doing it, you know, you, especially when you get on the internet, uh, 
you realize all the quacks and the wackos that come out. <laughs> when you teach on prophet, some prophecy, or the, especially the Antichrist, you got all kinds of crazy people who have bizarro ideas. I've had people, I should show you some emails, I should dig them up. And some of them are funny, I was like, you know, they're like there and saying, oh, Trump or Obama or Biden is the, it's always some kind of American president, right? So, like, you know, you go back to these people and say, okay, what scripture are you having on that? Well, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, that's, uh, he's got to be a Roman. And I pointed out this passage. I said, so none of these guys uh, uh, fits the bill, okay? But some of these people, they'll, they'll, they say all kinds of, and some people that are very respected too, they still say, some of these people say crazy stuff and they, they, they ride, they have eschatology as a hobby horse. They say, you know, I have a friend who led me to the Lord. He spends so much time on prophecy and stuff he did. It's like prophecy is very important, okay? But this is where, you know, some guys, they're hobby horse. And they, I say hobby horse, but the things that they teach on is to draw the crowd. Now, when you teach prophecy or something very, you know, you know stuff, you'll find there's certain guys that's all they do is teach on prophecy. My Bible says those guys taught, the apostles and Jesus, they taught the full counsel of God. When we do First and First Thessalonians, Paul taught the full counsel of God to those people. He told, he taught them uh, the various doctrines of the Christian faith that he just didn't sit on eschatology. So I teach, try to do the full counsel of God. I don't ride any hobby horses. I'm not trying to impress people or get people in the doors. And, you know, some guys will do the talk about the angelic contract, and that's all they seem to be talking about. Angelic contract, angelic contract. And usually those are the guys Satan brings down, okay? You get angelic contract, or dating relationships and marriage for 50 million times. I've seen guys do that. You know, marriage is important, okay? Picking the right mates are important. But I read my New Testament, and man, I'm telling you right now, it says something about marriage, but it ain't the, it isn't the whole shebang. It's a little portion, okay? It's one of those things that we have to pay attention. It's important, but, but it's not as important as some of these guys make it. Why, or finances, plus now in America, the prosperity gospel. You know, everybody wants to know about money. How can I be rich? You know, and they, they got some crazy stuff. Wilkerson had a book. Uh, he came out of Dallas, and he was Wilkerson. He had some crazy book, quoting a passage of the Old Testament in Chronicles somewhere as to, to, to support his teaching. And that's a false teacher when he taught. He's like, one passage on this? And so people will flock to that in America because we love money, just like everybody else in the world. But Americans are really bad about that, right? And uh, so we have uh, so these people, who just that's what they'll listen to, Okay. And a pastor should be teaching the full counsel of God. And, you know, uh, that's why expository type teaching is very important because it keeps you going through the books. I can't, you know, you got to, you can't, I can't jump around things. You never see me jump around a verse. I go through it and I talk about interpretive issues, whatever. I'm not, I'm not hiding anything. Okay. So when you do that, you, you the, the Holy Spirit is picking, is picking the subject that you're going to teach on. Okay. Because you're reading what the Holy Spirit inspired the human authors to put down in writing, right? So that's very important. So expository teaching keeps you honest, and it keeps you, it gives you, it enables you to, or leads you into teaching the full counsel of God. All the, what I mean by that, the different books of the Bible, and also the various doctrines of the Christian faith that we need to know. All right. So Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse one, and Paul is 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 addressing three major issues. Uh, in, in this book, one of which is that somebody went into Thessalonica and he had to leave because of persecution, him and Sylvanus, who started the church there. Uh, they were probably there about a year. 
uh, they, Acts 17 talks about them being there for three weeks, three Sabbaths, but that was just to evangelize the Jews. And a very small group believed. Primarily the Thessalonian church, like a lot of churches of the Roman Empire that Paul started, were Gentile. So uh, somebody went in. They had one, one issue was in chapter 3 is that they did, some people were not working. And Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's something America could hear. We, we do that book. That'll be a fun chapter to teach on. And they were subject to church discipline, these believers. And, but there's the other one was this, somebody was going in there saying that the day of the Lord, what we're talking about, had already begun. And Paul was upset. And so he's, he goes and reiterates some things he had taught them and, and how they relate to the rapture, which he talks about in verse 1. The rest of the thing, he's talking about the 70th week of Daniel, the second advent of Christ. So he wanted them to get the timing right, okay? Very important. Which, in other words, Paul was pre-trip, okay? This passage teaches he was pre-trip. And that means that the rapture comes before the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. And by the way, when you use pre-trip, remember, the tribulation portion of the 70th week is the last three and a half years, okay? In fact, I get that word, we get that word tribulation because Jesus used it and in Matthew 24, when he talks about the abomination and the desolation, well, that, 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 that the tri- tribulation the world has never seen, that great tribulation, the older translations have it, that, that's talking about the last three and a half years of the 70th week, which are described in great detail in Revelation 6 through 18. That's where God's, you know, Jesus and the, the Son and the Father are pouring out the seven seal trumpet of bull judgments, okay? So Paul saying, setting them straight, he wants them to know that these things have to take place and they haven't taken place yet. So therefore, it hasn't begun, okay? And it can't begin until, as he says, the Holy Spirit's taken out of the way who indwells each member of the church. So it's at the rapture this will take place. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Okay, so this is right here. He's talking about the rapture. How do you know? Well, he's using the language of the Lord who talks about the rapture for the first time anybody ever talked about it. It was a mystery not known to Old Testament saints in John 14, 1 through 3. And they gathers, he gathers them to himself. So that's talking about the rapture. See, with the second advent, he's coming back to the earth and he stays. No, he's saying gathering them to himself. Okay? So he says, so it's, it's, what he's going to say is in relation to the rapture, the resurrection of the church. But he doesn't talk about the rapture, the rest of the, the passage. He's talking about the 70th week. So he says, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And he goes on to describe the rebellion. And now when we get to this passage in detail, and we'll definitely do it in one day on uh, when we get to this book, when we do this book, which I'm actually seriously thinking of doing the next book after Habakkuk is First Thessalonians and do it right on the heels of that Second Thessalonians because it dovetails what we're doing here in the Day of the Lord series. But it's got other stuff too, really cool stuff, a lot of cool stuff. So anyways, the rebellion, there's three major views about this word, apostasia in the Greek. Now, it's correctly translated rebellion. And there's some people who say it should be translated departure. And the, they, they believe it's talking about the rapture. It never, and I, I go through this in detail, like, uh, you, can read, you can read my article on this, this passage, nowhere is it used in Greek like that, in New Testament, not, not at all, okay? So it's either rebellion of the church, 
which I used to be feel was the case, the apostasy of the church at the end of the church age, the great apostasy. And I used to think that, and then I used to think it was the rapture for a long time. Neither view I agree with anymore. And it's really simple. And I think I said it one day, I said, what a dummy, it's right in front of you, okay? A lot of this is what happens a lot of the time. That's why it's good to not be super smart. Like, I'm not the super smartest guy, okay? Um, uh, I got, my, my IQ is just like a little over room temperature. And you don't need to have a super IQ to be a good Bible expositor. You just have to follow this direction of the Holy Spirit and pay attention and not be too full of yourself, okay? The text tells you. <laughs> Paul always explains himself anyways. So what is the rebellion? He's going to tell you what the rebellion is. You don't have to guess about it. And then you get these great, you know, and I used to be in one of them. You know, oh, this, this. And you know what? The text, pay attention to the context. He defines it for us. So he says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And he's going to say what that is. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And keep reading, because doesn't it sound like a rebellion? Yeah. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. I think that sounds like a rebellion to me. It's a rebellion of the human race led by the Antichrist. And the rebellion is against Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There it is. Now, I love this. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? He taught them eschatology. A master class, and they were baby believers. I told you, when I first got saved, eschatology, I knew pretty good. Before I walked in the church I got ordained, I was pretty averse on eschatology. And so then he goes on to say in verse 6, and now he's going to tell you what has to take place before this man before this man lawlessness appears, the Antichrist. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Now, notice it says it's a what that's holding the, 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 the Antichrist back, the manifestation of evil. Okay, so it's a what, okay? Then it says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one, the one now it's a person, who holds it back will continue to do so until he is, he is taken out of the way. So what happened? He went from a what, and now he's a he. So, very simple answer to that. In verse, when it says what is holding him back, that's the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. He, that's the person of the Holy Spirit referred to. Now, why does he mention the Spirit by name? I don't know. I have no idea. There's been some reasons why, but I really don't know. So, but we do know that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell each member of the church. So, in the rapture takes place, it's understandable how he could be removed. Now, you might be saying to me, you might say, well... The Holy Spirit is omnipresent, isn't he? How could he be removed? Ah, good question. Good thing. Good point. Well, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are localized in a body of people, individual believers. That's not happening to everybody in the world. He's localized in us, the church. That's why we're called the temple of God. Remember, Paul makes reference to this in Second, First Thessalonians. You know, he's telling us Thessalonians to flee immorality. He says, don't you know you the, the temple, the Spirit of God dwells in you? You're a temple of God, all right? So the Holy Spirit working through us is restraining evil. In fact, he's working through the believers who are obedient to what he's teaching them in Scripture. They're the ones he's using to restrain evil in the world. Isn't that interesting for us to hear?
You know, you think, you and I think, oh, we're, not, we're nothing, nobody knows who we are. The president doesn't even know who I am. Nobody knows the, the Senate. The, no, nobody in America knows who we are. Don't they? Well, guess what? One day, the truth is going to come out about what we are. People who have positive volition. When I say positive volition, it's not that they just listen to the word of God, but they do it. Perception, metabolization, application, right? Well, that's who the people, the Holy Spirit's using to restrain evil in the world. And that's restraining evil from mani- uh, Antichrist from manifesting himself, which implies that the world has to, as, the ch- as if the church goes more and more into apostasy, evil proliferates. If you notice in our country how much evil is proliferated in, the, in, the, in, the, in America, and I'll tell you why, and I told you before, it's the church. The church has lost its influence. It's not what it used to be 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And it's reflected in our society in America. Okay? So then it says... Uh, in verse 7 again, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then, notice the, the, the consequence, the result, and then the lawless one, Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Some people say, oh, well, um, the Antichrist can be indwelt by uh, the devil. No, I don't think he is. I'll tell you why. There's a satanic trinity involved. Read Revelation 13, where the, the Satan is aping the Father, imitating the Father. The Antichrist is imitating Jesus Christ, and the false prophet who promotes the worship of Jesus is imitating the Holy Spirit. So we know that the, the Father, well, in a sense, there was a mutual indwelling of the, of the Father and the Spirit and the Son, but you know, the person of the Son of God was in the, the body of Jesus, okay? That's why I say, that if they're raping them, it, 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 he can't be indwelling, uh, the devil can't be indwelling say, uh, Antichrist. So he says, the coming of the lost one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Now, that sounds unfair. No, it's because they reject the truth. What else is God going to give them? They reject the truth. Here's your lie, because Satan's got the lies for you. I can't give you tr- I can only give you truth. And so it says in verse 12, And so all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, the gospel of Jesus, but have delighted in wickedness. So if you look at some of these slides on the board, some points here about what we just read. Paul's statement in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 that Antichrist will take a seat in the temple of God displaying himself as God is a reference to the statement in Daniel 9.27. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Revelation chapter 13 verses 14 and 15 also mentions Antichrist exalting himself as God and receiving the worship of the world as such. Look at Revelation 13.1 now. Revelation 13.1. Revelation 13, 1. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. That's the devil, okay? He imitates the father, satanic trinity, right? And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. And the sea depicts its figurative language, apocalyptic language. The sea is, and you see this in Daniel, it talks about the Gentile nations. So he's a Gentile. I saw a beast, and there's two beasts in this chapter. 
The first one is Antichrist. The second one is the false prophet who promotes the worship of the Antichrist, who I believe is going to be one of the popes. So he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each had blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So he gives him his power and throne authority. Uh, so very important. That doesn't mean he's in permanently, he's indwelling the guy. Okay? So I, on one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and the world, whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Uh, basically, uh, it's an assassination, and he's assassinated, but he comes back to life. This is the counterfeit resurrection. And the, wonder, the reason why people are going to fall for this guy is going to be that. Just as I said before in the past, I think, imagine JFK came back from the dead three days later. Whoa, shoot. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, this guy's pronounced dead. He's, he's dead, dead, you know, and rigor mortis is about setting. Guess what? He comes back to life. It's a counterfeit resurrection, Okay. Fascinating chapter. Men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Okay, so he's got, he's considered to have power, omnipotence, and, you know, it's interesting, who can make war against him? I believe he's going to have some kind of military background. Maybe I could be wrong. And the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words, sounds just like Daniel 7, which we're going to go to in a moment, blasphemies, and to exercise his authority for 42 months. Three and a half years, 1260 days, as we'll say. So he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Uh, Sherry, uh, uh, you all know our Sherry here, she emailed me a question about the notes and uh, she was mentioning the passage in Daniel 7.21, which we're going to see in a moment, and the word saints. And she asked, you know, is that the church age believers? You know, it, could, it, it, it talks about saints. I said, well, well, the saints here are Old Testament saints because they're uh, not, excuse me, Old Testament saints. They're saints that are going to, believers are going to live during the tribulation period because in Daniel 7 21, that passage is speaking in context of the tribulation period. And I said, go, I said to Sherry, go to Revelation 13 7, you'll see the word saints there too. So every time you see saints in the Bible, it doesn't mean church age believers all the time. In fact, I'm, I'm doing a passage in, in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter, uh, what is it? Ephesians chapter two. I, uh, I'll be teaching on a few, in, a, in a couple of days um, that this word saints there is not talking about the church. It's talking about saints from the Old Testament. Okay, so the word saints is used Old Testament saints and tribulational martyrs. In fact, I did a, 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 a whole thing on that. All right. So we see here it says in verse seven, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and he had, was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants, see that? He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Okay? But, got to balance scripture with scripture. This is, uh, this is what we call uh, hyperbole for, uh, for an emphasis. Uh, we see that Daniel talks about, Daniel 11, 36 through 40, the end of the chapter, 45. There is pushback. And China is one of those, the Far East is one of those uh, areas of the world that push back at him. But it says in verse 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those names have been, not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain for the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, this is important. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity you, captivity you will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast. This is the, the false prophet. 
coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Uh, as I said, uh, Ray and I were talking before class, and he mentioned about that, as I said before, about could the Antichrist be a, a pope? And, and many in the church history have thought that. I said, no. And I told my reasons I told you. But I said, here's why I think he's going to be, uh, the, this, uh, this uh, one of the popes is going to be the false prophet because he says he has horns like a lamb. Okay? He comes across as a lamb. Okay? But he spoke like a dragon. He exercised this false prophet, all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, on his behalf. He's, he's imitating the Holy Spirit, promoting the worship of the Antichrist. And he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. He's the one who makes this image that's standing in the temple that Jesus talks about. When you see that standing, that image of the Antichrist, now you have to run, says, he says to the Jews living at that time. And so it says, he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Notice he's died from it. It was a fatal wound, okay? It wasn't they got him in the ER and they, they, they resuscitated him or they kept him going. No, he's dead. He's dead as a doornail, okay? And, but he comes back. It's a counterfeit resurrection. And he performed great and miraculous signs. That was a good one. <laughs> Even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. And then it says, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth and he ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Wounded by the sword. Okay? He was given power, the false prophet, to give breath to the image of the first beast, the Antichrist, so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. And you might be saying, oh, it's got to be, uh, maybe it's going to be AI or something like that. Hey, I don't know. I think it just, uh, he does it. <laughs> Remember, Satan's got so much so, uh, power, uh, but he's, uh, God only permits him to manifest certain of his power. And he'll be, be allowed to make a, a great manifestation of his power during the tribulation period. But uh, So who knows how he's going to do this, okay? So I brought you that passage because, as my point here on the board, Revelation 13, verses 14 15, mentions the Antichrist exalting himself as God and receiving the worship of the world as such. Now, Paul's statement that the Antichrist opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2, means that he ranks himself superior to all the supreme beings worshipped by the various religions of the world, which will be a fulfillment of Daniel 11.36. And Daniel 7.25 makes mention of the Antichrist, putting an end to the sacrificial offering during the final three and a half years of the 70th week. And Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, mentions the Antichrist, identifying him as the little horn, while Daniel 7.23 through 25 interprets Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. So, Let's go and take a, let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, please. Daniel 7, 1. So, before we ever do Revelation in this ministry, it will, we first will be doing Daniel. And I, at Zechariah probably will be another one we got to do. But you can't do Revelation without knowledge of the Old Testament. Though he doesn't quote, he doesn't make an explicit quotation, John, of Old Testament passages, you can see he's alluding to it, the Old Testament all over the place, okay? And definitely Daniel. You don't, if you don't know Daniel, you don't have a chance in Revelation. You just don't. Daniel 7.1. 
Daniel 7.1, in the first year, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. The great sea, again, the Gentiles. Four great, we know that, the Gentile empires. By the way, as I pointed out before, Daniel chapter 2, with the image of Nebuchadnezzar, that, 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 that vision he had of that uh, statue, that's talking about the times of the Gentiles, from the, the Gentile nations as from the human perspective. Chapter 7 of Daniel talks about the, the, the Gentile nations, the Gentile world powers as from God's perspective, as wild beasts. Okay, so four great beasts, and they represent empires that ran consecutively in history. Each different from the others came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. That's Babylon. It's fascinating. The interpretation of this passage, you know, we talked about the four beasts, it's pretty amazing. I mean, there's some deviation from it, but primarily, all the expositors that of this passage over the years, they always say, these four beasts are in consecutive order. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greek, Alexander's, Alexander's Greece, and Rome. They all pretty much, the, the commentators throughout the centuries have said that. And uh, in fact, uh, when, when Josephus points this out, that when Alexander the Great was coming up to Jerusalem, and, they're all, and, the, and the high priests were like, oh, freaking out, don't, don't, don't wreck the temple, right? So they went, out, they went out to meet him, and they show him the passage where he's predicted <laughs> his empire, and he's on, yo, the leopard, you know, because they, they, and he was like, let's not touch the city. And he walked away, because they knew, then they knew this passage, the Jews knew this. So it says, there was verse 5, and there before me was a second beast that turned out to be made of Persia because they followed Babylon and defeated it and absorbed it into its empire, which looked like a bear, good description of made of Persia. And it was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told to get up and eat your full of flesh. After that is another beast, and it's the, Alexander's the great his empire. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, good description for him and his empire because they conquered with tremendous lightning speed for that. They talk about the, before the Blitzkrieg, it was these guys. And on its back had four wings, which depict the four generals of his that took over for him after his death. And on its back had four wings like those of a bird, and this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Okay? After that, here we got Rome now. In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had lion, large iron teeth. The description here is like, so it's Rome. <laughs> it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and in that it had ten horns. Now, this is a little tricky part, which got the, the, the Jewish zealots of Jesus' day and the apostles' day screwed up as we saw in the book of Jude. That's why they thought they had scripture to support rebellion against Rome, and they were wrong. They forgot the ten horns. They didn't take, they just didn't understand that was another stage of the Roman Empire, the final stage of the Roman Empire. You might have heard a revived form of the Roman Empire. So while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one. Here's the first picture mention of the Antichrist, which came up among them. 
and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, the Father, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like white, as white like wool, and his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. It's apocalyptic literature, speaking of a real person, the Father, and that the fire speaks of his judgment. Okay? Thousands upon thousands attended him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated, the Supreme Court of Heaven, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the son of man. That's a picture of Jesus. And coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days, the father, and was led into his presence. That's the ascension and session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the father. That's been fulfilled in history. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His millennial reign and eternal uh, new heavens, new earth. It will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, Daniel's going to get an interpretation. We don't have to guess about the interpretation. Daniel, uh, Gabriel gives him the interpretation. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there, an elect angel, and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. Okay? No guesswork here. The four great beasts of four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the, sun, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. That's the millennial reign. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, because that little horn, the ten horns, okay? Which was different from all the others and more, most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. Sure, Rome was the most terrifying empire. They ruled for over a thousand years and no army ever beat them on the battlefield. They've, dis- they've disintegrated from within. And, uh, and you know... And I'll tell you what, that, that, reminds of, that, that reminds me of the United States is following their example, I believe. I, I don't think anybody's going to beat us on the battlefield. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its... I could be wrong, okay? Speculation. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. And that horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. This is the tribulational martyrs, okay? And until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom, history tells us it's Rome, that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth. That's what Rome did. Now, when he says the whole earth, okay, this is called hyperbole. He didn't go to China, okay? It's talking about the world of their day and age, the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world. That's how you know it, okay? So you've got to understand the, 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 the literature and the, what, he's, what he's saying here. So it says in verse 24, the ten horns, which are actually ten kings, he says, will come from this kingdom. Now, it's interesting about Daniel and revelations like this and Daniel's like this. Kingdoms and kings are kind of merged together. It's, 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 it's a, a phenomenon of Daniel, okay, in Revelation. So you can't say one without the other, okay? So you have a ten, so if Antichrist is a Roman, and he is, so Rome, where they come, Europe, right? 
And so, yes, they went into Northern Africa and they went into uh, the Middle East and all that, but primarily they came out of Europe, right? So we have European, 10-nation European Confederacy that's going to come together. Now, there's been up to, right now, the United States of Europe, you know, it's unbelievable how much they've progressed, okay? You know, with the, the, you know and so what we know is it's good. this is going to come down to 10 and then actually 7 because the Antichrist is going to take out these three other nations, okay? How he's going to do that, I don't know. Maybe nuclear weapons, I don't know. So the ten who the ten kings will come up from this kingdom, and after them another king will arise, different from an earlier ones, and he will subdue three kings, okay, Antichrist. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. That's interesting. The saints will be handed over to him for times, time and a half time. Time, notice the single, that's a year. Times, that's two years, and a half time. Add them up, three and a half years. Times, time and a half time, is speaking about the last three and a half years of the seventh week. The 42 months we heard about earlier, right? 260 days, there you go. It's mentioned over and over in scripture, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Why? It's important. It's especially important for the people who are gonna be around during this time, okay? So they can identify. So we see here that in Daniel 7, 23 and 25, the unidentified interpreter, who is more than likely an elect angel, Gabriel, continues to provide Daniel the interpretation of the vision he received from God. As we just read in verse 24, the angel informed Daniel that the little horn will ascend to power after the ten kings represented by the ten horns ascend to power. And then he tells them, uh, tells Daniel, that in contrast to these ten, the king, this king will be different in comparison to them. He becomes more specific by telling Daniel that he will conquer three of these ten kings. Now, in verse 25, the angel continues to describe this king and specifically what he will do in relation to God and his people. And the first of all is Gabriel informs Daniel that this king will issue statements against the Most High. And this interprets the statement of Daniel 7, 8, and 20 that the little one spoke boastfully. The angel who then tells Daniel that this king will make it his habit of persecuting the saints of the Most High. And that interprets verse 21 that we read, that the little horn was continually waging war against the saints. So Antichrist is going to be persecuting God's people for those last three and a half years of the 70th week, in particular Israel. Okay? Then Gabriel informs Daniel that this king will attempt to change, this is interesting, the times, yes, even the law. Okay? This does not appear to interpret anything from Daniel's vision. It's actually additional information, revelation, which will be further developed in Daniel 9.27. Remember, this was written this came before Daniel 9.27. We're in Daniel chapter 7, right? Okay. Now, a couple of interpretations I thought were kind of interesting to look at it as we close. Some interpret this attempt to change times and law as an attempt to change moral and natural laws of the universe. However, there's nothing in the context of this chapter or the book of Daniel which would seem to indicate this is the case. There are others, if you look at this slide on the board with me, there are others, I'm bringing out these interpretations because... You probably heard of it, like I did. There are others who think that this statement means that the Antichrist will impose a new legal system on all his subjects, doubtless based upon totalitarian principles in which the service of the government or the state will be substituted for the absolute standards of God's moral law. Okay? So, what do we have to say about that? Well, some spec we'll talk about that in a second. Some speculate the Antichrist will attempt to adjust the time schedule so that there'll be no longer be a 24-hour day or attack the moral foundations of society. However, again, context rules, okay? It's better to interpret 
this statement that the Antichrist will attempt to change times and law as a reference to abolishing the Levitical offerings in the old Mosaic law, which are related to the worship of Yahweh and replacing them with those pertaining to the worship of the Antichrist. So that would indicate that he will attempt to abolish the observance of the seven great feasts of Israel. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, day of atonement, tabernacles. He's in Israel. He's going against Jesus Christ. He's going against God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Mosaic law is God's law. And we're not under the law, but it's God's law. So what do you think he's going to do? So he, this is, in context, it has to be talking about the Mosaic Law. And this is supported. This is supported by the fact that this statement does not interpret anything in Daniel's vision in chapter 7, but is an addition, which is developed further by Daniel 9.27, which says that Antichrist will put an end to these sacrifices. Are those sacrifices in the law? Yes. So you'll have people who say all kinds of crazy things, and I used to listen to them too. Pay attention to the context. Not the case. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, the, the noun da in the, in, the, in the Hebrew means law, okay? It doesn't say Mosaic law. We know in context. In fact, you can't go anywhere in the Old Testament and say, where does it say the Mosaic law, okay? You know it's the Mosaic law because it was given to Moses, and it's the same law that he was given on Mount Sinai the Jews were practicing, okay? So this word law here, Daniel 9, 9, uh, 725, excuse me, refers to the Mosaic law, the law that Mo Moses received at Mount Sinai, and specifically to the Levitical laws concerning sacrifices, because if you notice Daniel 9, 27, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and Revelation 13, 1 through 8, which we all read, indicate that the Antichrist will put an end to the Levitical sacrifices, the sacrifices of the Levitical sacrifices. And why is he doing this? In order to establish the worship of himself during Daniel's 70th week. In other words, wiping out any rivals, including as what's his name, did um, Al Pacino, that great scene, and uh, what was the name of it? Devil's Advocate, worship that, you didn't even call him him, that, oh, chilling, the guy had been to, he must have got some, he must have read it to somebody who knew doctrine, okay, knew the word of God, well, that's what he's basically doing, he's, by doing this, he's opposing God, because God is the one who gave the law to the Jewish people, now, the angelic interpreter's last statement in Daniel 7.25 is emphatic, informing Daniel that the saints of the Most High will be given into the power of this king, represented by the little horn who we know as the Antichrist. And this interprets the statement in Daniel 7.21 that the little horn will overpower the saints and refers to God's people being killed by the Antichrist. And then Daniel is told that this will take place for three and a half years, which is a reference to the last three and a half years of the 70th week. So these, we'll close with this, these three and a half years correspond with the four times, time and a half time in Daniel 7.25, which we just pointed out. And they correspond to 1,260 days in Revelation 12.6. We didn't read that. And the 42 months that you see in Daniel of Revelation 11.2. So there's references to the last three and a half years of the 70th week where Antichrist is going crazy, okay? That's mentioned quite a bit in Scripture. Why? It's important especially important for the people that be around in those days. And by the way, when the church is raptured, the church, look at all the wealth of work of the 2,000 years of the church, godly men with the gift, the gift, you know, the Holy Spirit guiding them, and they, they have all this work on this stuff. So the Jews and the Gentiles that are left at this time, they're going to be studying this stuff. They're going to be studying it. 
they're going to be looking at it, pouring over these things. Okay? So, this three and a half year period is also not an interpretation of anything in Daniel's vision and chapter 7, but is added by the angel. So it's looking ahead to Daniel 9.27, which is a reference to the 70th week of Daniel in which these future events described by the angel in Daniel 7.23-25 through 25 will take place. Well, let's close in prayer. I've said enough. I've got to get you out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'll play your song and get out of here. You know, Bert did that song on prayer, so sometimes Bert helps me out trying to figure out what song I'm going to play, because sometimes I don't know what to play. I don't, uh, so I'm going to do this one here for you. Pray to your Father. Right. And if you need to get out of here, you know, by all means, go. It's like, not down not all you go now. I need to pay for somebody. Yeah.